Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 16, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Oh, that has kind of a cadence to it when you slow down. PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. I wonder if somebody could make that into a rock and roll lyric. Hmm, I don't think so. Uh, well, I'm Rick. I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, released last year, and Spiritual Grit before that, and The Jesus-Centered Life before that. And before that, the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, which uh, over the Easter weekend, uh, more than 100 churches distributed that Bible to anyone who wanted one through in a drive through kind of situation. We gave away uh, two cases of Jesus-Centered Bibles to the first 100 churches that asked us for them to give away to people uh, on Easter weekend that just drove up and with proper social distancing, got one. And uh, we ended up giving them away to like, I think uh, more than 120 churches actually, because that's how many asked for them. So a lot of people are now reading and enjoying the Jesus-centered Bible for the very first time. Makes my heart feel warm. So gang, we're in the 11th episode of a new series I'm calling Foundations where we're exploring foundational truths that are connected to Jesus and his mission in our lives and the kingdom of God. 11th episode. That means that this was pre-pandemic when we started this, and the whole world seems like it's changed uh, and upended uh, since then, since we started this, this series. And maybe it's, you know, prescient that uh, we're in the middle of exploring foundational truths about Jesus when there's never been a time in my lifetime where we've more needed those foundational truths about Jesus than today. So many of the things that we thought were in our control, it turns out they're not. And so much of our self-confidence and even our arrogance has been undermined during this time. And it, truth be told, throughout history, Jesus has never wasted seasons of struggle and grief and suffering like we are going through now. He never wastes a season like this. This is the time, the exact time, when people recognize reality um, in their lives, maybe for the first time, that they're in need of someone outside of themselves, that pulling yourself by, up by your bootstraps and making it on your own and uh, advance, 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 uh, what happens when you have to retreat when you have no choice? It's during this time that we discover or rediscover Jesus again. So I'm so happy that there are so many uh, Jesus Center Bibles out there again right now to help people as a guide along the path. So in this series on foundations, uh, we're up to something that <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward to today. I call it the awkward in-between. And it matches where we are right now in our culture and around the world. We are not in the before, the 11 weeks ago when we started this series. We're not there for sure. And we're not yet on the other side of this either, are we? 
uh, we're in the awkward in-between, the transition, you could call it, where we don't have our feet underneath us still, and we don't know yet what life is going to look like on the other side. Does normal life seem like a distant memory to you now? Or do you think if all of the restrictions were, were uh, lowered and we were assured that this virus is in steep decline, do you think that you would slip right back into normal again? Well, I, I don't think I would, to be honest. There are some fundamental changes that have uh, beset us during this time that I think are gonna linger for a long time. Uh, our relationships with each other, how we touch each other, if I could say it that way, the, the things we do in our free time, the way we work, so many of these things I think will show permanent change. So maybe you're already thinking past this quarantine experience we're in right now to maybe you could call it the afterlife. Uh, maybe you're thinking of what you'll be doing in a week from now, two weeks from now, a month from now. Maybe you're wondering if the plans that you had for late spring, early summer, maybe after all you might be able to complete those plans. I know I have uh, two daughters at home, one in college, one in high school, and the high schooler has already lost out on some, some things that I don't think are coming back. But one of her hopes is that somehow prom will be a thing, uh, even if it has to happen during the summer. So she's holding out hope that somehow some of the things that she's had to grieve over will actually boomerang back or miraculously be resurrected. So. Um, even so, we know that not only has our culture changed as a result of these new, uh, as a result of what we're going through right now, but we've also changed. You've probably noticed some changes in yourself already and how you view the world. And I, I have a feeling that some of those changes are going to continue afterward. And I think that some of those changes you can look at as uh, a deficit. But there's a lot of changes happening in us right now that actually Jesus has taken what is ugly and is making beauty in our lives. You know, uh, our older daughter, Lucy, who's been at college, she's a junior at college. She has not spent this much time at home with us in a couple of years. And I am deeply enjoying being around her for this stretch of time. And I know long after this is over, I'll have many lingering memories of nights and days spent doing something with, with Lucy while she's been home. And I'm grateful for the gift of that in the midst of such a horrific and deadly time that we're in the middle of still. So I, I thought it would be interesting to think about the disciples in relationship to the awkward in-between the place that we're at, they were also in the awkward in-between. Um, if you think about Easter being less than two weeks from where we sit now, think about where the disciples were and what they were doing and what life was like for them less than two weeks after the resurrection of Jesus. We tend to think that, wow, in kind of these uh, black and white and linear terms, Jesus rises from the dead, all will be well now, he ascends into heaven, they start the church, Everything's nailed down, but actually for the disciples, there couldn't be a more a disorienting time than there is inside of two weeks after Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, 
this is such an extraordinary thing if we put ourselves in their shoes and actually feel what they must have felt relative to this extraordinary, amazing thing that has happened. Uh, they must pinch themselves all the time. Is this really real? Is this really Jesus? What's going to happen now? What's our mission? We thought our mission was one thing. Then he was arrested, tortured, and crucified. And then we thought our mission was just to stay alive because maybe we're going to be next. And now he's, he's resurrected from the dead. What's our mission now? How long is he going to be here? What will we do if he goes away again? Um, what, are we, what does he expect us to do with the rest of our lives? So much that is up in the air. They can't see what life is going to be like after the 40 days that Jesus intends to spend with them before he ascends to the Father, they're still in the 40 days, the awkward in-between. Life will never be the same as what it was before all this happened, but they don't yet know what, it, what it's going to be like. Now think about this. Uh, just, I, here's, here's how to help. I want to help you put, your, put yourself in their shoes. Think about this. Just days after the empty tomb, this is their reality. Their leader has just been killed by a mob, and one of your own friends, one of your own compatriots, one of the 12, is the one who betrayed him. And it turns out this same person knows everything about you, all the places you like to go to, where you live, your habit patterns, your role in Jesus' uh, uh, little uh, troop of disciples, that that person, that betrayer, knows everything about you, too. And suddenly, you're wondering, what do I need to do to survive here? How, how do I need to make sure that I'm not next? Well, of course, the tomb is empty. And two of the women that are close followers of Jesus, they've been to that tomb, and, they, and they've seen the resurrected Jesus. And you're like, uh, well, they are, after all, women. Because during this time, the testimony of women wasn't even allowed in court. So there are some deep-seated uh, gender issues at, at play here. And it's interesting, A, that, that uh, two women were chosen to be the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. I think that is just brilliant on Jesus' behalf, that, that this is what he does. But then they show up and, and tell the rest of the men um, that Jesus is raised from the dead. And you could only imagine that some of them start to mansplain to these two women that, well, yeah, I know you think you know what you saw, but after all, it probably was the gardener. So now there's some, so a hint of possibility here, but also a hint of tension in the group. And then Jesus appears to two disciples who are walking home from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and he just sidles up next to them. Uh, incognito somehow. We don't exactly know why they don't recognize him, but they don't. And he starts asking him questions about what's happened in Jerusalem, playing, playing dumb with them. And they start to explain things, and it's quickly apparent that they didn't understand anything about why the Messiah came. And so Jesus walks them through scriptures from the beginning to the end, describing to them who the Messiah is and what he came to do. And it just opens their eyes. They now they see the story of Jesus really for the first time. And as they break bread together, they recognize this is Jesus. He's not just a guy telling us about Jesus. It's Jesus telling his own story, um, the macro story of redemption and truth. 
and then he disappears. Another strange thing, and these two disciples head on back to Jerusalem to tell the rest of their friends, you wouldn't believe what just happened. (laughs) Can you imagine that story on the heels of the story they've heard about from the two women? And then Jesus suddenly appears in a locked meeting room, and he shows everyone, including you, his wounds. And you're just exploding with joy. You can't believe this. It, it must be true. It must be him. And after that, because Thomas wasn't there with the rest of the, uh, of the gang at this particular meeting, eight, day, eight days later in another locked room, Jesus shows up again just to show Thomas, yep, it's true. <laughs> so meanwhile, in this 40-day period, Jesus is performing even more miracles post-resurrection. He gives his disciples then the gift of the Holy Spirit simply by breathing on him. And when he breathes on them, he transfers his presence, his spirit. The spirit of Jesus is now in them. And the evidence for this that he gives is, now that you have my spirit in you, uh, whoever you forgive on earth will be forgiven by my father. Uh, So he's essentially saying that the power to forgive that the Pharisees were so offended by when Jesus went around forgiving people, now they have as well because he shared his very presence with them. The evidence of the presence of Jesus is that he gives us permission to forgive and that he will also forgive the same. And then he meets, of course, one last time alone with seven of his disciples on the beach um, after they go out fishing all night because they don't know what else to do. He meets them on the beach to eat breakfast together, to eat the fish that they've caught, and to add to, the, to their catch with his own fish. We don't exactly know where those own fish came from, do we? But he had his own f- supply of fish there, and they added to it and ate breakfast together. And this is where Jesus has his little beach conversation with Peter and redeems the three betrayals of Peter by asking him three times if he loves him. And in that little walk, Jesus reiterates again that Peter is going to be the point person for the church going forward. And then he travels to Bethany, the end of this 40 days, where he gives him one last blessing. And then he ascends to heaven. You don't even know what that's like. We can, that just rolls off our tongue, doesn't it? That you, just imagine, though, that you're standing there, and you've been with the resurrected Jesus off and on for 40 days. We don't know all that he was doing during that time. We just know snippets. And then he ascends to heaven. What does that mean? And if he literally is rising up into the sky, which is just unfathomable to think about if that actually happened that way, then, you know, can you ever forget that moment? So many unforgettable moments during this awkward in-between. And uh, I, I, I know for myself, I mentioned, even, I mentioned before, that there have been lots of unforgettable moments already for me in the awkward in between, the, the wearing of a mask everywhere. I, it was only a few weeks ago where experts were saying the mask wouldn't matter. And then about face, yes, the mask does matter. And watching the, the prevalence of mask wearing grow everywhere. And I have a wife who, had, who is immune compromised, so I have to be extra careful whenever I go out and feeling the tension around me whenever anyone gets close to me in the grocery store. All of these things are vivid memories. My family decided, my my daughter Emma asked if we could do a Harry Potter marathon. So we watched every Harry Potter film, I think there's eight of them, 
back to back to back to back, night after night, we had a, a massive Harry Potter marathon. We got to see um, Daniel Radcliffe grow up before our very eyes. I, I'll always remember that stretch of watching Harry Potter with my family over the space of a week. So just, just as these things will stick out in my memory for years to come, imagine what these things, how these things will latch in the disciples' memory for years and years to come. Maybe you have felt similarly. Maybe there are things that have happened during this quarantine time, the awkward in between, that you'll never forget. And it's because everything underneath us has been upended and our footing is not solid. And there's something about this time, this season, that I'm grateful for. If I, it, just to be honest, there's something underneath all this that I am grateful for. I'm grateful for the way Jesus is drawing us back to him. Well, let's explore a little bit the awkward in-between with Jesus. Now, Luke and John have the longest, most detailed accounts of Jesus' post-resurrection. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to explore a few of these vignettes, few of the things we do know about what was happening during the awkward in-between, to help us understand the heart of Jesus and what, what he intends to do, what he intended to do then, and maybe what he's intending to do now in our own awkward in-between. So the truth is, of course, Jesus could have simply returned from the dead, resurrected, and headed home immediately. They could all happen in an, in an eye blink. But he didn't. He, again, stuck around for those 40 days. And the question is, why? Why did he stick around? Maybe he wanted us to know, even today, that Jesus sticks around during the awkward in-between, that he sees that there are great possibilities during the awkward in-between. So let's, let's think about a couple of questions as I read some of these little vignettes. Uh, first, Remember, keep in mind what the disciples were thinking and feeling at this time, similar to what you're thinking and feeling right now. Um, and then think about, well, why exactly did Jesus do what he did in this story, given where the disciples were at? And then the second question is, what can you say about his heart based on that? So let's take a look at the first one. It's the uh, women in the empty tomb. This is from Luke chapter 24, 1 through 12. I'll read this and then we'll consider the questions. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. Well, the women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. And then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day? Well, then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. Well, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story, the story sounded like nonsense to the men. So they didn't believe it. Hear the tension? Hear the mansplaining? There it is. They didn't believe it. However, to his credit, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. That's an interesting thought, by the way, that with all of this distrust and, yeah, that sounds like a bunch of nonsense, Peter is the one 
who jumps up and runs to the tomb to look. And we learn from the Gospel of John that John himself also went with Peter to do this. So two of them decide that, that they trust the women's account, and they're going to go up and see for themselves. So Peter jumps up and runs to the tomb to look, and stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. And then he went home again, wondering what had happened. So here are the two questions we're thinking of again. Why exactly did Jesus do what he did in this, in this story? What, why did things happen the way that they did? And what can we say about his heart based on what he did? So, so what we see here is these two men clothed in dazzling robes uh, appear to these women and, and it frightens them. They must be angels because that's the common response to whenever people encounter an angel. They, they're terrified and they bow their faces to the ground and they're shaking. And in this case, the two men ask the women, who are you looking for? Don't you remember Jesus isn't here and he wasn't supposed to be here. He's told you all along this is what was going to happen. Um, and we know from other accounts of this, of this encounter that, that Mary also lingers and is just heartbroken because she thinks someone's actually stolen the body of Jesus. And so she meets a man that she thinks is the gardener and asks him where, where his body's been taken. And she's not trying to get anybody in trouble. She just wants to know where the body's been taken. And the man speaks to her and suddenly is revealed that this is Jesus himself. And so in, in person, Jesus encounters Mary and wants her to know that he has, he has risen from the dead after three days. And three days was the uh, universally agreed upon standard for dead, <laughs> as we talked about in our last episode, that three days in the tomb is dead indeed. And he, here Jesus encounters Mary and the women first. So what do we know about Jesus' heart based on this? He appears first to the women, not to the men. Um, and then, then the men, at least two of them, come to see for themselves whether this could be true. I think uh, there's something here that is such a common thread in the heart of Jesus, that he is always appreciative and sees the heart of the marginalized, the, those that know they need him, those that are not on top, those that are not in control, those that are at the mercy of others. He sees them. Um, their hearts are so apparent to him. And he trusts them. And he trusts them because they, they have the nature of the relationship with him right. They're naturally dependent on him, naturally craving him, naturally quick to believe in who he is and what he said he would do. They're it's, it's essentially he's gravitating to the good soil. If you think about his parable of the soils, there's three soils that don't grow uh, for various reasons. Some have rocks in them, some have weeds in them, some are on parched ground. But there is a fourth soil, a rich soil, that when you plant the seeds in that soil, things grow. And here Jesus chooses rich soil to plant the seeds of his resurrection in the women who would for sure soon and quickly believe in this remarkable thing. To them, it is not nonsense. They run back to the disciples 
they tell the disciples what has happened. The men first say, this must be nonsense. But the women are far past that. The rich soil of their hearts has already allowed that seed to be planted and for it to begin to grow. All right, let's take a look at the second story and ask the same question. This is the walk to Emmaus that I mentioned before. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. We don't know how, but somehow God kept them from recognizing him. So he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. Well, what things? Jesus asked. Well, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. Pay attention to all these little details here, by the way. Um, their, their response is the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. Think about how they're describing Jesus here. Not the Messiah, just this man from Nazareth. They go on. He was a prophet. Hmm, take note of that, who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and the other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Well, then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and that they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Well, some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. <laughs> it's almost like they're shocked that these women actually told the truth. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. All the women out there say, amen. <laughs> you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By the way, uh, taking them through Moses and all the prophets describing everything connected to himself is essentially what the, the blue letters feature is in our Jesus-centered Bible. My friend Ken Castor, professor at Crown College, and I spent weeks and weeks together uh, poring over the Old Testament, looking for every reference through all of the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus. And we found so many, we had to, we had to uh, put a cap on it at about 700 of these. And all we did was highlight in blue type these references, these, these foreshadowings of Jesus. And then we wrote little blue boxes that, that uh, explained the connection all throughout the Old Testament. So if you have a Jesus-centered Bible and you're looking at it closed um, uh, in the, sort of at the edges of the pages, you'll see blue all the way through the Old Testament. So here, this is what Jesus was essentially doing. He was the first architect of the blue letters. <laughs> he, he was explaining to them how the Old Testament all points to him and foreshadows him. So that's what he was doing, um, explaining everything concerning himself. And by this time, it says, they were nearing Emmaus at, and at the end of their journey. And Jesus acted as if he was just going to go on. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. 
And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. And then he broke it and he gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. This is again at night. They're traveling back to Jerusalem at night. Now they can't contain their excitement. The evidence has built from the the report of the women to a, to a direct experience they have with Jesus. And there they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. So capture the, the awkward in between here. They're, they hear a story that first seems incredible, unbelievable. And now it's becoming more and more real. Think back to when this pandemic had not yet hit our shores here in the United States. Think back to when that happened, when we heard about one little outbreak in Seattle in a nursing home. And yet most of us felt like, well, it hasn't shown up here yet. Like every other kind of uh, worldwide concern of a virus, it's probably gonna die on our shores. It's not gonna reach us. But think about the, the moment when it actually became real that this was going to be a huge thing. Think about the moment when the country shut down, when your work changed, when you could no longer go to a restaurant or go to church, and, and you're trying to get your mind around this. Is this really happening? Is this really real? Am I living in a movie? That's where the disciples are at. They're trying to figure out, is this really real and what's happening? So. Why exactly did Jesus do this uh, the, with these two guys on the road to Emmaus? And what can we say about his heart? Well, for one thing, the thing that just sticks out to me is how playful Jesus is. He, he comes up to these two disciples and like a prank, somehow uh, cloaks his identity from them. We don't know exactly how. Um, and starts innocently asking these questions as a precursor to actually explaining to them everything they don't yet understand. And miraculously, the light bulb finally goes off for these two disciples. Jesus must have been delighted by all of this. Now, he starts off by saying, you foolish people, you're, you're just having such a hard time believing everything I've been telling you and the prophets have been telling you for ages. Um, he, he's, he's, he is fully human and fully God, right? And so here we see his fully humanness just you know, frustrated with these guys that they still don't get it, but, but not in a solemn, punishing way, frustrated in a playful way that, and then he, and then he um, uses the moment and the, the walk that they're on to unveil to them all of the, all of the truths about who he is from the Old Testament. And why? Because he wants them to see all of scripture as a narrative that is a, sort of a crescendo that leads up to him and how everything they've experienced about him actually makes sense when you, when you think about the crescendo, that all that they've seen him do and say is the perfect crescendo to all of that. So what can we say about his heart based on that? Well, that he's relaxed, he's playful, he's patient, he's humble. He, he, uh, he appears to be wanting to go on from Emmaus, but he stops instead and 
looks like he's going to stay the night with them and they break bread and then he disappears. And all of this is just so playful. He's not, I mean, this is going to sound funny. He's not taking himself so seriously. Not everything has this serious intonation to it. Let's go to a third story, uh, the locked rooms from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And then he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. And eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace, peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, well, you, you believe because you've seen me. But blessed, blessed are those who believe without seeing me, which would include you and I right now. So here we have this incredible mysterious encounter with Jesus where he appears past locker room. So we don't really understand his physical state here. He appears to be able to leave and appear at will. And we're not quite sure how that works. It's just how they experienced him. But a couple of things I wanted to point out here. When he breathes on them, the Holy Spirit, and says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. But then the second part, if you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Think of the level of trust he is conveying here to his disciples. He's saying, you have my spirit in you now. Trust my spirit. Forgive those who need forgiveness. And if you withhold forgiveness from someone for, for some reason, then they're not forgiven. He's not just giving them tacit authority and responsibility. He's transferring his authority to them by his spirit. And he's trusting them deeply that they would find, uh, when, they, when they would discover um, truth for themselves and act on truth for themselves. Um, I just find this profound, that this is, this is what he says to them. Then, then the, this little encounter with Thomas, um, we, we call him Doubting Thomas because of obvious reasons, but we, we think of him in a kind of a, uh, in a disrespectful way. When we think of him doubting, we think, you know, he's the only one, uh, Thomas, he needed more evidence, didn't he? Yeah, that Thomas, you know, uh, if only he would have believed like the others did. Well, the others didn't believe either. Not a single one of them. You, the only case you can make for those who believed are the women. But the, uh, Thomas is no different from the rest of these men. They're all skeptical. Um, the others have had their encounter with Jesus. They have seen 
what they've seen with their own eyes. Thomas hasn't, and it's, it would be a struggle for anybody in this kind of extraordinary uh, circumstance to simply believe. Jesus is not downplaying Thomas's doubts. Instead, he's simply saying the truth. The people who believe without seeing, they're really blessed because, wow, what an exercise of faith. Um, but he's not downplaying the fact that Thomas has some doubts and wants some evidence. Um, in fact, he humbly shows up to give Thomas that evidence because he cares for him. So it's a good thing to remember when we think about Jesus in our awkward in-between, that yes, we have doubts. Yes, we struggle sometimes with hope in the awkward in-between. Um, my wife was on the phone the other day with uh, a, uh, a young man uh, who's part of a Muslim family, a uh, Syrian refugee family, that she has been coming alongside for a couple of years now, helping them to navigate life in America and helping them to launch their own restaurant so that they have a way of uh, earning an income. And she was uh, talking to the young man who, who is the primary breadwinner for their family. He's 24 years old and he's the one that is earning the money and running the restaurant for them. She was talking to him and she was just telling him some of her anxieties and doubts and fears. And Mohammed, uh, this young man, has expressed a growing interest in Jesus. At one point, um, we had invited him to church, and he had to back out at the last minute. But I think um, he has seen the Jesus in us, and particularly in my wife. And so when she started expressing her anxieties and her doubts, he simply said to her on the phone, there was a little bit of a brief pause, and he said to her, but, but Bev, you can trust God in the midst of this. God loves us and he's good. And this, is, this, is, uh, this was a profound experience for my wife. She was reminded again in a humble way to turn her eyes back to, the trusting, to, to trusting the good heart of Jesus. So um, in that moment, she was like Thomas. She needed some evidence. And from the from a direction she least expected, she was encouraged to trust again. Let's take a look at the very last story here. We'll close with this one. This was the story of Jesus with his disciples on the beach. It's a bit of a longer story, but uh, I'll read it, and then uh, we'll talk about it. It's from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. Here we go. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee, and this is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. And at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Hmm, when else has that happened to us, the disciples were thinking. Then the disciple Jesus loved, who was John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he'd stripped for work and jumped into the water and headed to shore. 
The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Well, bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said, like, like, like he had just stopped by, you know? <laughs> I'll bring some of the fish over here. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. And this was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he'd been raised from the dead. And after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. Well, Peter turned around and saw behind him the disciple Jesus loved, again, John, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So the rumor spread among the community of believers that this disciple wouldn't die, but that isn't what Jesus said at all. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This disciple is the one who testifies to these events and has recorded them here. And we know that his account of these things is accurate. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. There you have it. I just love that story so much. Maybe one of my favorite in all of scripture. Just a couple of things to point out here. Again, we're thinking about why did Jesus do what he did in this scenario, in the awkward in-between of the disciples, and what do we know about his heart as a result of it? I think it's fascinating first to really think about Peter in this situation. Peter the betrayer, Peter who wasn't there at the cross, Peter who had been so counted on, who crumbled in a moment that all of his bravado and his courage just melt in front of a little girl. Um, Peter, who must have lost himself in that moment and didn't know what to do with himself. And, and uh, in some of my books, I've suggested if you really step into the shoes of Peter and understand the kind of uh, identity and personality he had, he must have had dark thoughts during this time, maybe even suicidal thoughts in, during this time because of the horrific and inexplicable and cowardly thing that he had done. How would he ever recover himself again? And there he is out, out in the ocean, fishing for fish and catching nothing. And suddenly his friend John says, I think that guy on the shore is Jesus. I just love how Peter responds. Past the shame, past the, the damning voice inside, he, he, he ties his tunic on to himself because uh, when, you, when you're a, a fisherman, you strip for f fishing, 
So he had, he had no clothes on. He ties his tunic onto himself, jumps into the water, thrashes his way to, to shore. And there uh, Peter gets, gets to the shore ahead of all of them. I love the passion of Peter. What he's revealing here is his deep love for Jesus. He is so hungry to be restored in relationship with Jesus. He can't wait. The thing that really defines him is not his shame, but his love for Jesus. And he wants that restored. And Jesus, again, in his own playful way, makes that possible over breakfast. <laughs> and after breakfast, he, he engages Peter with his three questions. It's interesting that the first time he asks Peter, do you love me? He says, do you love me more than these? He uses a comparison. Is your love greater for me than it is for all of these people? And Peter first answers yes. And Jesus sort of turns the table, tables on him then because he says, well, if you love me, I want you to love them as much as you love me. He, he sets a little playful, redemptive trap for Peter. He says, you know, Peter, I see your love for me. Now I want your love for me to fuel your love for others. Because love for others is what the church is built on. I want that love for others to be the engine of, of spreading the church around the world. The heart of Jesus is for those who are honest enough, desperate enough, um, and, and aware of their need enough to acknowledge the beauty of Jesus, to, to respond with passion to his invitation, to, to uh, have such a passion that you can't wait to get to him, to have such a passion that if there is something blocking you in your relationship with him, you just want it to be dealt with and gotten out of the way because you don't want it to be there any longer. You want anything that is in between you and Jesus to be dealt with, to be disintegrated. You just want intimacy again because it's the thing that defines you at your, at your core. And yet we need his help for that to happen. We can't manufacture it. It's our response to his invitation that finally uh, obliterates the distance between he and I. Just some things to keep in mind as you move through your own awkward in-between. Remember the heart of Jesus during this time. Remember that he's an artist and he takes raw, ugly things and makes them into beautiful, beautiful things, things that reflect his own beauty. Remember that. All right, gang, thanks again for listening. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. You can find uh, this episode on PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You'll be looking for season five, episode 16. You can look for links to everything I've talked about today there. And this is, by the way, a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and we'll talk again next time. 